Welcome, as always, to the Space Biff Space Cast. Today I am joined by someone who I'm very excited to speak to. This is a designer of a number of exciting board games as well as a designer of video games. He straddles two worlds. Uh, he is perhaps best known for his collaborations with Derek Yu. Um, he has co-designed games such as The Eternal Daughter and the forthcoming UFO 50. This is John Perry. How are you today, John? So, so obviously, this is uh, this is John Perry. I am I am excellent today. Good, good. So, I understand that you are traveling. You've uh, recently gotten back from BGG Con. That's right. Yeah, that was a blast. I think it was the first. You know, there, there we lost a year because of COVID, and then there was a year after that that felt a bit uh, lighter weight than usual. And actually, you know, I'll just say that that convention in general hasn't really ever been the same, not just because of COVID, but ever since PAX Unplugged launched around the same time. Uh, it, it used to be that that BGG Con was the big convention at the end of the year that every publisher went to and so on. And uh, now I think, you know, most a lot of people have to choose between one of those two. And a lot of people chose PAX Unplugged because it's bigger. So BGG Con has only gotten smaller and more intimate, but uh, that's all right with me because I found uh, it's just easier to 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 draw on their huge library and play all the new stuff. And I have friends that go every year, so it was a really good time. I haven't been to one of the big conventions in a little while. I've been to Gen Con a few times, but I actually really enjoy going to our weird local convention, Salt Con, just because I know the people and it's not quite as busy and there's more opportunity to do the things I actually like doing at conventions. Yeah, and I've, you know, BGG Con is the one I've stuck with year after year. I mean, it's, it's the only one I'm loyal to. And, you know, I have these con friends now that, you know, it feels like they're, they're like camp friends, really. Um, you know, they're from all over the country. A lot of them now I'm really close with and, and talk to throughout the year. Um, but it's just become kind of a ritual in my life. So it's just it's always something I look forward to. So you, of course, are a very talented game designer, and and you're straddling two very different worlds with board game designs and video game designs. Uh, so for our listeners, what might they know you from? Well, the the board game that I'm that is most successful that I've put out is Airland and Sea. So I would imagine that would be the first thing people would think of. Um, I'm also working on a, on a video game and have been for far too long now. It's been, <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've stopped counting the years cause it's, it's depressing, but it's uh, five plus years, I think. Um, and that's called UFO 50. Um, and that's a collaboration with Derek, you, who you mentioned earlier. Yeah. What is UFO 50? So UFO 50 is actually 50 games in one, which is my main excuse for why it's taking so long, because um, it turns out making 50 games takes a little while to pull off. Yeah. Um, but basically, we're supposing an alternate universe, an alternate timeline where there was a, a game company that uh, made a bunch of 8-bit games uh, in the late 80s. Um, and that company then went out of business and those games were lost to time. And UFO 50 is sort of us uncovering those 50 games and sharing them with all of you. Uh, so they're 50 completely playable, full-fledged games. I wouldn't even really call them micro games. I mean, they're pretty close to the size of that Nintendo games were back in the day. Um, oh, wow. But there's also a bit of a framing story about the, you know, they're all created by the same company. They all have 
the dates that they came out. Some of them have sequels. Um, so it's it's a rather ambitious project, as you can tell. So it's you know it's been it's been a long time in coming. So when somebody logs into UFO fifty when they when when it releases, um, is it is it just like opening up a, a bundle of games or does one progress through them in some sort of fashion? Uh, I recently played a game called Inscription, which oh, sure. is I think three games, but you progress through them in a story. Yeah, uh, I mean that would make a lot of sense. That's not what we're doing though, because I think a lot of the initial inspiration was. Um, well, Derek and I specifically a long time ago, his dad would get, um, he would get these, these floppy disks that were just full of games and you would, you know, put them into an old PC and you'd list the contents of the directory and you just see all these names and these were, you know, you didn't know what you were going to get until you typed the name and it was just sort of fun to explore these things. So Derek and I had that experience growing up. And then of course there were those pirate carts, right? That were jam packed full of 50, hundred, sometimes more games where you would just sort of had this grab bag of things to try. And a lot of them were weird or strange, um, but you never <laughs> knew what you were going to get. So that's that's the feeling we're trying to conjure. So we're just overwhelming people right from the start with here's a big grid, five by 10, uh, 50 icons and names and dates. And uh, it's up to you to, to go from, to dive in and go from there. Of course, Airland and Sea is a game that I think is absolutely wonderful. But you've also designed um, Time Barons. That's also a collaboration with Derek Yu. Um, and you've designed one of my favorite uh, social deduction games. And one of the reasons it's one of my favorites is it's almost an inversion of the social deduction mm-hmm. formula a little bit. And that's Scapegoat. Um, and of course, those aren't what we're here to talk about today. But if anyone's listening and is curious about what John's uh, repertoire looks like, those are those are all games that I would heartily recommend checking out. Today, though, what I wanted to ask you about is you have designed a game that is one of my favorite lane battlers, um, which is a big statement, to be honest. And I, I hope you appreciate it, John, because lane battlers are also one of my favorite genres. I, I've played a lot of these games and I was curious uh, ha- when you sat down to design Airland and Sea, was it, had you played any lane battlers before or was, were you, what were you working from? Uh, yeah, no, I definitely had, I think I, I had not played a ton. Um, uh, Battle line was, would be the main one that I yeah. was, that I was drawing upon, which is just a cla- or shot and totten. Right? right. In fact, I, 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 was it you that coined the term shot and tots yeah. for, uh, for these games, which is, right, which right. I mean, I think is, is an homage to the fact that that, I don't know if it's, it's probably not literally the first one, but it's, it's certainly, um, uh, one of the most popular and, and important ones. Um, right. So, so that was a game I was drawing on directly. I think maybe a balloon cup might've been floating around in my brain somewhere. Um, but I feel like there's been an explosion of these games lately, uh, and I've played a lot more of them since, actually, um, and thought more a lot about it as as a genre. But prior to Airland and Sea, I think it was it was mostly Battle Line I was drawing on. Battle Line is, of course, Reiner Knizia. Uh, I've been playing Shot and Tot two lately. Yeah, it's just it's a very good game. Uh, it holds up quite well, surprisingly well, to be honest. I th- I'm always worried when I play. Uh, so it's it's probably the most recent one I've played, actually, even though it's sort of the birthplace of that whole genre. And uh, I was worried it would be old compared to some of the other ones. I like it quite a bit. Um, 
what are you how do you feel about it i love that game um i think uh it, it sometimes you know gets matched up against uh lost cities which is another great reiner knizia card game mm-hmm. uh so it, which is i wouldn't call lost cities a, a lane battler but um you can see why they sometimes get compared and and uh, I, I've definitely had arguments with people that prefer Lost Cities, but I, if if you made me choose, I would choose Battle Line. It's definitely it's one of my favorite uh, in the genre and my favorite Reiner Knizia games. Period. Um, it's I don't always want to play it because it stresses me out. <laughs> I will say that <laughs> sure. because it has that thing where you that that Lost Cities also has right where you always you never want to play any card in your hand. Right, every right. card is terrible to play. <laughs> Uh, and you don't get to draw until after you play. So it just, uh, I have to be, I have to be in the right mood, but I always enjoy it. Which lane battlers have you been playing more recently? Well, Hanuman Koji is a more recent one that gets a lot of play because it's just so elegant and simple. That's, um, that's one if, if listeners don't know, that's really as much based around the, I cut you choose mechanism as, as it is a lane battler. Mm. Um, but it has the same basic conceit um, where you have several lanes and you're trying to, to win a majority. Um, I recently got to play uh, Rift Force, which I thought was a pretty beautiful design. Yeah, I will say, like a lot of the um, a lot of the playing that I do as a designer these days is I don't get to go super deep with a lot of the games I play. <laughs> it's sometimes rather shallow because I I try to see a lot of different systems and try them out. Um, one I wanted to play more of, but never really got to because I didn't. The the normal people that I play with weren't super enamored of it. Is is Omen Reign of War, um, and I've I've always planned to come back to that one because I thought that one was really interesting. Um, that one also unfortunately got destroyed in a, in a flood that I had recently, so uh, that may not happen oh, anytime no. soon. But but those are I I think those are probably some of my favorites. Um, I don't know if you would call Haven is another one that I haven't had the opportunity to play, but seems interesting to me. It has some interesting ideas about like a meta game. It's a hybrid with uh, a map, so you you'll play a little match, and then depending on how that goes, it affects the map. So I like that one quite a bit. The thing that struck me when I was looking at the rules for it um, was that there's a push your luck mechanism built into the into the lanes, right? Mm-hmm it seemed like in, in a couple ways, right? You have to play some of your cards without knowing what they are. And there's a, a bit of a blackjack mechanism where if you exceed a certain limit, you you effectively bust. That's something I haven't seen in another lane battler. So I'm curious how that ends up playing out. John Cloudus also did an empty throne recently, which is pretty good. Um, his design idea there was, what if I did Omen now, but made it with one deck of cards instead of you know, many, many decks and many special powers. Have you have you tried that one? Or the other one would be Radlands. So we'll start with Empty Throne. Uh, I don't know much about that, but that immediately sounds good to me. Because, you know, I'm a bit picky in my games in that, like, uh, I just like them to have as few components as possible. <laughs> That's definitely sure. <laughs> part of my agenda as a designer and, and as a player. And, you know, I will play anything. I will play gigantic games with tons of pieces, no problem. Um, but if you start with the premise of Omen, but uh, shave down a little bit and, and maybe honed, I'd, that sounds like something I'd like, but not something mm-hmm. I've played. Um, what was the, oh, Radlands. Yeah, Radlands is interesting because it's, uh, it's, it stretches the definition of lame battler a little bit, I think. It does, yeah. 
because you do have the three lanes, right? And the and the victory condition is kind of tied to the lanes in that you have I forget what they're called in that game the the locations that you have the bases, the outposts what, or something. The outposts, I, that's it, right. It might be bases. I don't know. We'll just say outposts. That sounds more uh, post apocalyptic. <laughs> so it's probably what it is. Yeah, it sounds Mad Maxy, doesn't it? Right. So so you're trying to protect those, but there's no. There's no majority, right? It's not like you win two out of three, which is usually the the mechanism in in a game like that. And it's also the the positioning only matters on defense, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Right. So, like, if you if you have a unit in a lane, it's defending that lane for you, but you can attack anywhere. So it means that the positioning of the lanes is, I think, less critical than it is in other games. Now, of course, Radlands has a ton of other cool stuff going on, like that that discard mechanic, right? Where every, yeah. every card can be, can be turned into some other resource if you discard it. I will say Radlands is one that didn't hit with me as hard as I thought it would. Uh, I feel like um, there's, there's a lot of praise for that game. A lot of people obviously really, really love it. And for some reason it didn't, it didn't gel with me as much, but I believe you really liked that game, right? I did. Yeah. I think you're right. Especially that it, if it fits into that genre, it's a it's an awkward fit, right? Right. It it feels like it. I mean, when you look at it on the table, I mean, it's that's exactly the kind of game it looks like. When I think about lane battlers too, it's like one of the sort of card battling mechanisms, and the other one that you know, the other paradigm that I always think about is the sort of more Magic the Gathering one, right? Sort of with creatures smashing into each other and and hit points and so on and it feels like um radlands is almost a hybrid of those two like it's it doesn't quite fit in either one it's kind of its own thing but it sort of straddles the line between those two systems you've mentioned that you like games that don't use many components do you have like an overarching design ethic or what are you going for when you design a game is that one of the things you really value it definitely is. I mean, I think I'm, you know, one of the things about making games is that the there's it's a pretty slow loop of designing the thing, pitching it, it coming out, and then seeing people's response, right? So, you know, it's only now after I've put out a few games over many, many years that I'm starting to feel like maybe I have some kind of style I'm developing or something. But if there's one through line, it definitely is what you said. It's that I just... I I don't like lots of fiddly bits. I think there's a lot of people in our hobby for whom that is actually a big draw, right? They get very excited by I get to punch a million things and and lay out cups for all the little pieces and put them in all the right places. And uh, for me, it's much more like how can I have as few kinds of things in the box as possible. <laughs> um, so that that's definitely an ethos I subscribe to. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your game, Air, Land, and Sea? In particular, what sets it apart from most lane battlers? I guess I'll start with this, because when I wanted to make that game, it wasn't... I didn't start from, oh, I'm going to make a lane battler, because as I mentioned, I think, you know, mm-hmm. Battle Line was one of the only ones I was super aware of at the time. And it feels very different, right? Uh, I mean, Battle Line is, what, nine lanes or something like that? It's nine or seven, it's a lot it's a lot wider for sure. So, I think I started with the with the withdrawal mechanism. And for people who don't know, the in that game, it's a two-player game, you're playing head to head. Um you each have a six-card hand, but you play 
actually multiple mini games to determine the ultimate winner. And each mini game is worth some number of points. But the number of points that that game is worth increases as as it goes on. So for each each card time you play a card, you're staying in and the stakes are raising. And the game allows you to, instead of playing a card on your turn, decide to withdraw, which means you're going to automatically lose, but your opponent's going to get less points. And that way, maybe your next hand will be better. So that was, I started with that mechanism, right? That was everything flowed from that. And so then it was like, well, I need to insert some kind of battling system here, right? And uh, that's how I then then eventually arrived at what I what I got to, which was this, you know, very condensed lane battler where you only have the three lanes and it's very simple. Uh, you don't usually draw cards in the game. So you just pretty much have the six you start with and you just try to win two out of three of those lanes. And those lanes don't score or anything until the end of the game. That's uh, something that I've noticed with a lot of other lane battlers is a big question with them is, you know, when do the, when do the lanes score, right? With Airland and see, there's no, there's no special scoring phase, right? It's just like at the end of the game, you just see, you know, who has the majority in, in two out of three. And I think I was, I was just, and in a way it was, it was lucky. I think I, it just kind of worked right away. Now there was at least a year or more before that, where I knew I wanted to make this game that had withdrawal and a very small hand of cards and you played multiple rounds and I just didn't have a system for it before I sort of realized that I could borrow from Battleline in this way. And as opposed to like, you know, something that's more Magic the Gathering inspired where you're sort of slamming creatures into each other, the thing that I thought was going to be really helpful about the two out of three lane system as well is that you you can generate a lot of game state with very few cards because it's not based around things getting destroyed. Yeah. In the expansion for Airland and see, I introduced one destroy effect. Um, and I guess there are some in the original set, but they're they're st- It's something I use pretty sparingly because I like the idea that the first card you play remains in play and continues to affect the game. And that way, you know, you're getting a, Again, a lot of I guess it goes back to getting value out of out of the components you have, right? Um, yeah. So so that was that, that was sort of how that one how that one came to be, and then it was sort of it was sort of a lucky accident when I realized that there was a sort of a, a nice synergy between the overarching mechanism of oh I should fold this hand so that I can do well in the next one. And what happens in a smaller way within a single game where it's like, oh, I should fold this particular lane and not invest there uh, so that I can win the other two. And that just, I don't know, there's there's some, there's some like a self-similarity to that that is always really exciting to me if I can find that in a, in a design. I think one thing that stands out to me is that it has at least compared to most um, lane battlers, it has a very compact set of cards. I think it's 18 cards. Is that correct? That is right. So on any given match, both players draw six cards and then there's six cards that are out. Right. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And very quickly, you start to understand the card pool. It really only takes one game, I think, because one game is going to have, you know, three, four, five hands. And so you're pretty much going to see everything played. And and from then on, you pretty much know what's going to uh, come out from then on. And um, 
And I think that this creates a very different feel from, say, Omen, right? Yes. Where Omen has, just without any expansions, already has, I think, 55 unique cards. And and you're never going to learn that card pool unless you're me and you've played it 60 times or something. Um, so how did you how did you land on 18 cards? Was that at all in, you know, classic micro games are 18 cards? Was that something on your mind? Or did you just want to make sure that you were seeing two thirds of card pool every play? Where did that come from? I think originally I might I thought that maybe there were going to be more. Uh, but 18, you know, when you're making a prototype, it's also just you know, you just want to make the prototype quickly, right? You don't want to cut as few cards as possible. And I had this suspicion, oh, like, I should at least be able to test this with only 18 cards, right? Even if I eventually need yeah. more, I'll be able to see if it works. And and it and it did work. And it was pretty clear that I didn't need more. So again, that also was, was a little bit of an accident. But again, flowing from this general sense that I have that I want to use as few components as possible. But I also think it was probably influenced by my one of my prior games, which you mentioned earlier, which is Time Barons, which is a game that was, again, a collaboration with with Derek Yu. And even just to tie it into what you said about Omen, I mean, I told you, like, I haven't played that game as much as I'd like because it bounced off some of the people that I normally play games with. And I think um, that inability to know what's coming out of that card deck, I think, was a big part of the reason people that I played it with, you know, kind of got frustrated with it. Um, and so... Right. So I and that's something a lesson I kind of learned with Time Barons where that game has is sits in a sort of weird middle ground. Now I'm very I'm very proud of that design and still and I I I I still enjoy playing that game, but it's it's not you know in in a, a gigantic card pool, right? Where you just throw your hands up and give up and say, "You know what? There's no way I'm going to know what's coming," right? There's there's no way I can card yeah. count here. Um, I'm just going to go with the flow, but it's also, it's not small enough that you can grasp it after just a couple plays, right? I mean, you have to play several times and then, and then it's, then you know what's in there. And I imagine that's been your experience, like you said, with, with Omen, where you now know everything in that deck. Um, but it took you a while to get to that point. I mean, I, that is definitely something, I mean, even though I might've stumbled into it by accident, that was something that I realized was going to be really helpful. And on top of that, I mean, since you play multiple hands at once, you, know, you really have the opportunity to learn them as you're as you're playing a match. Um, I think the other thing is too is like I, I again I started with the withdrawal mechanism, and that's coming from from poker, right? Yeah. So I mean, if you think about poker, that's that's a deck where you know exactly what's in there, right? You don't have to, um, and that's what allows you to to bluff, right, or to have some of these mind games. I was hoping that, you know, people would play Airland and see and get to the point where, you know, it looks like I have the card in my hand that that doubles the value of all wilds. And so because it looks like that, you might be more likely to fold. Um, this is not something I expect people to do when they're only played the game 10 or maybe even 20 times. But, I, you know, as you continue to play the game, I wanted that to be possible. And if you have a gigantic card set, uh, you know, things like that, like sending signals about what you may or may not have in your hand, just that just doesn't seem to work as well. On Twitter, I think you called it uh, the difference between a bounded and an unbounded deck. Yeah, exactly. That's like for those two kind of extremes, right? Like the bounded deck where you know exactly what's in there 
and the unbounded deck where you you have no idea and you just accept things as they come. Um, I was trying out those terms as you know often in game design, everybody's making up their own terms uh, because those things aren't still yeah. <laughs> totally totally hammered out. So I don't know if those terms will stick. Um, but uh, that was that was how I what I came up with to describe that. I think it's a good term um, in part because I think it captures something better than like small versus large, because quite famously um, a a deck of playing cards or a tarot deck is bounded, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, You know what's in there. And the same goes for something like Rift Force where the, you know, there's a lot of variability. It's just that once you start playing, your deck is bounded because both sides pick, I don't know, three, four, five uh, types of suits, basically, and shuffle them together. So you know exactly what is in everybody's deck from the instant you start playing, um, as opposed to Omen. Yes. Right? Uh, and that is, I think, a, one of the core decisions in, in Rift Force. Yeah, I'm very, I'm, I'm very excited to play that game more because it does seem like it makes some, a lot of really smart decisions, and that's one of them. You know, the way I get around it in Omen is um, I only play Draft. There's an optional rule where you 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 and your opponent, you both create a deck of like 30 cards and you do it by, you both draw three cards simultaneously. You keep two and pass one. The other one goes to your opponent's deck. And um, I like that a little bit more because you're working on your synergy. And honestly, it only takes like five minutes. Right. So, so that's how I play Omen now, (laughs) specifically because it doesn't bound the deck um, to use your terminology, but it gets it a little closer. Like they can, they can be looking at synergies as they're preparing and it helps a lot. Well, and a lot of it is, is just protecting people from being blindsided. Right. So, I mean, again, that was the problem that I ran into with, with time barons, you know, there's a card in, that can come out late in the game that, you know, does about one damage for every card in your hand. So hoarding cards is turns out to be quite bad at that stage yeah. of the game. If, if you don't know where that card is. Um, and if you know that that's in the deck, it's a fun mind game. It's it, it adds some interest, but you know, the first time you play, you just get hit with that card. You lose and you're like, throw up your hands and you're like, well, geez, that's not fair at all. And so I can imagine the way you're describing playing Omen. I mean, at least you've seen, You've had the chance to see a lot of things. So you know you know the kinds of things that can happen. And I think that probably goes a long way. You know, speaking about time variance too, that's part of the charm though. Even though the card pool isn't infinite, it, it allows for wacky and unexpected plays. Actually, one of our uh, listeners, my friend Dimitri, who writes board game reviews over at Pixel Die, um, he asked, what what will it take for us to get uh, time variance too? Oh, okay. Uh yeah, I know, I know, I know who he is. Actually, I've enjoyed some of his his writing. Uh, oh yeah, you know who he treats. Uh, I mean, not not well, but we've interacted online a little bit. Um, so uh, I've been thinking about this question of time variance too for a long time because it is a game that has its its strong fans. Um, I, even though yeah. I don't think it's a well known game, and it's uh, it, I don't think it exactly made a huge splash when it came out, but. Um, but there's definitely a, a, a base of hardcore people that that really like the game, and I and I'm probably among those. So I mean, the challenge I've had is like, how am I going to fix the things that I see as the problems with it while preserving some of the charm of it, right? And to some extent, those things are hard to extract from each other, right? Um, 
some of the rough edges are part of the part of the appeal in a way. So I, it's like, which ones do I file down and how? Um, and so it's like been a, I haven't feel like I've been thinking about the problem a lot and I haven't felt like I solved it in my head well enough yet to just go ahead and go ahead and make a prototype. So, but it's, it's something I definitely want to do at some point. Well, Dimitri can take heart. <laughs> so in Airland and C, you use cards a little bit differently than I've seen done elsewhere. Do you want to describe how that works for us? Sure. So I, I imagine you might be referring to the fact that the back of every card um, is itself a unit card, right? Like all the cards are unit cards. They have a they yeah. have a, a strength value that helps you control the lanes as a lot of these games work. Um but the back of every card is is a just a bland two unit with two power that has no other abilities. And you always have the option to play a card face down, which you would do because, well, you do it for a variety of reasons. Um, but the first superficial reason is um, that allows you to play it to any of the three lanes, right? Normally cards have a color. The lanes also have a color. So you need to play so that your card matches. Um, they're called theaters in the game. Uh so usually when you're playing face up, you're both getting a power and you're oftentimes getting a higher number, but the flexibility of being to play it wherever you want is a reason why you might want to play any of the cards face down. But it also, you know, it, it, it does a, a few other things for the game. You know, obviously there's among the special powers, there's ways to flip cards face up. So it can also be a way to surprise people uh, at, on a later turn with more strength than, than they expected you to have and so on. I got to say, I was surprised how much mileage I got out of the whole flipping mechanism in the game because it, it really leans on that a lot because it, you know, it also plays into the the bluffing aspect, right? Because uh, any face down card is, since it can be flipped over, is a bit of a, a, a threat, right? An unknown threat. Yeah. When I first made the game, I thought I was going to need a lot more design space to make it work. So I had a, another state that cards could be in. Where they were, they were tapped, right? They were turned sideways. Oh, okay. And I think at that, I think they were worth zero or something. And it was, you know, that lasted for a couple versions before I realized, like, I, this is just messy, right? I don't need that. There's, I can, because the other thing that the face down thing does is it, it's, it's that's how cards can be attacked without literally being removed from the game. Because I was, as I mentioned earlier, I wanted to keep as many cards in play as possible to keep the the complexity level up and keep the game state interesting. So, you know, if I play a six, you can flip it and then it, it downgrades to a two, which also makes it a little bit less swingy, right? Than if I literally said, oh, it goes to a zero, right? Um, you've lost four points, but not, but not six. So yeah, that is, that's like, I think for sure. One of, one of the main mechanisms that makes the whole game function. Well, now I know why you don't like Radlands because you can tap the cards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not against tapping per se, but uh, it was it was more like having tapping and flipping in the same game at a certain point seems seems redundant. It's a very clean game. It doesn't need a lot to work, and and I love that you did that because it draws all of the attention to uh, the the bluffing and brinkmanship of the cards and how it informs the potential retreats. The expansion is, uh, <laughs> I believe, the. The silly term I've seen is expand alone, which I don't know if I love that term, but uh, it's a it is it's a standalone expansion. We'll use the the proper terminology, uh, uh, but you can mix it. Um, so it's its own set of eighteen cards. 
the primary difference is just that the the powers on the cards are different, but that drastically changes the game because the powers are such a huge part of what's going on. Um, but you have the same basic makeup, one through six, in in three different theaters. Um, the fact the the three power was always the same in the original Airland and Sea, and that continues in the expansion. Um, the expansion is called Spies, Lies, and Supplies. So the the three theaters also are they're not they're not uh, it's no longer hot war, right? So you have an espionage theater, you have a diploma diplomacy theater, and you have an, an economics theater. And it has a, a few more components, which I added begrudgingly, because uh, there's now a supply token mechanism. the The economics theater uh, can add supply tokens um, due to various effects, and those are essentially just tokens that add extra strength to theaters. Okay. Um, they allow me to just have a little more design space to play with. And but you can mix them, right? So you can you can sort of mash together any any combination of three theaters amongst the six if you have both sets, um, and then you can also play a bigger game with with five theaters if you want. So just hearing that now, and I and I hope you'll excuse me because you know I love your game. Five theaters sounds like it would be a mess. Well, I think it's it's fair to call it a variant, okay, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not. I'm not putting that forward as the, as the main way to play the game. I think if what I would do first is play the game standalone. Um, I think it's it's balanced well to be played that way, and then I would mix, start mixing them together. Um, you know, picking any any combination of three that you like. And and then after that, then I would venture into this sort of epic variant with the five theaters. I, now I don't think it's a mess, um, but it certainly changes the flavor of the game. At that point, you have also a ten card hand, right? So it emphasizes more the part of the game that is how can I sequence this hand and get these powers to trigger properly. And I'd say it de-emphasizes that. Um, sort of, you know, mind games and bluffing and folding element. In fact, it's, you know, when you do play that way, I recommend playing to a much lower point goal if, if even using, you know, the folding mechanism at all. So it's it, in a way, it's a fundamentally different game, but I do, I do enjoy it. And I, you know, I wouldn't have put it in the rule book if I didn't think it was worth playing, but I'm, I'm guessing it wouldn't be your favorite way to play it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, but but nobody should take uh, me calling it a potential mess as any sort of statement of quality because I haven't played it. I haven't had the pleasure. Was was it difficult to come up with a second set of eighteen and have them balanced and everything? Yeah, that was actually a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. I think because the design is so tight, there's not as much wiggle room and design space as as I would like to make it really easy to come up with endless cards, right? So I had I had to I had to really think hard about what was what was going to work. Um and it's just like a lot of things that sound interesting um really turn out to be not interesting in practice with this game. So there's just there's there's so many things that that just so many cards I threw away. I mean, probably Three or four times the the number of cards that ended up into the final set were things that I that I tried and then didn't work. So it was a, it was a struggle for sure. Now more on the business end. So this game has been published in two totally different editions. So there's the the classic World War II theaters edition, um, but you also have an edition that is um, 
cute animals, right? Um, what was behind the decision there? Because uh, in preparing for this, one of the people who I'm on a, uh, a Discord channel with actually pointed out that he has managed to play this game a, a lot more, 500% more, uh, because he has some friends who they find the animals uh, appealing more appealing than the generic World War II setting. How did that come about? I'll first say that, you know, these are the decisions that are pretty much out of my hands, right? So I I, I think, a, you know, a board game production can work in a lot of different ways. And I don't think everybody always knows that this is how it often works, which is a lot of my games, I make a prototype and I have a name and I have some some temp art and a theme and some things that are implying a direction. Uh, and then I pitch that to a publisher. And once I've licensed it to a publisher, uh, they then have the final say on things like art and the way everything looks. Now, it depending on the publisher, I may have some influence there. I may have quite a lot of influence, uh, but also in, with some publishers you work with, you have almost none. Arcane Wonders probably falls somewhere in the in the middle there, and I have they've been they've been wonderful to work with, but uh, I they definitely I think have handled the art and the theme differently than I would have. But I I think for them, it was just the coming out with the animals version was a response to just seeing the feedback over and over again, which you can if you go on BGG you will you will see it of people praising the game and saying, oh, but I wish it didn't have this drab World War II theme. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, I can, to some extent, I can understand where they're coming from. I think also the game is just not super saturated in its original version with with the color scheme. So I think uh, in some ways, I think people are also responding to that maybe as much as, as, as the theme. So, um, you know, at, at one point that, that feedback came through enough times that Arcane Wonders decided it would be it would be a good idea to to give it a, a reskin, and I was all for it. Have they both been um, reskinned? Yes, yeah. The expansion it does also. Uh, I think that one is just is a little hard to get right now. I think there there were a few copies at Essen, but it's not. I don't know if that you can you can order it right away, but it's it's definitely on the way. It's just you know caught up in in supply line hell, I believe. <laughs> As is everything right now, right? Yes. I want to thank you for two things. First of all, thank you for telling us so much about Airland and Sea. As I've said, this is actually one of my favorite lane battlers. Um, I love it quite a bit. I have some great memories of sitting down with my friend Brock at a writing convention because we were sick of hearing all the writers talk about being writers and just getting to sit down and play Airland and Sea for an hour uh, was such a relief because it's such a wonderful game. But also, um, I'm really grateful that you're here today because I think of you now and and I'm sure you're going to push back on this, but I think of you as one of the foremost authorities on lane battlers in the entire world. John, is that accurate? It's something I'd like to live up to, but I don't I probably, <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of people vying for that title. So I think if I, if I study hard and, and work at it, maybe I could, maybe I could earn it, but I don't, I probably don't have that now. <laughs> I think, I think as a baseline, I would have had to have at least played all of them. So since I can't, since I can't say that, I'm going to say no. Well, I'm sure you'll do us proud because one of the reasons that I wanted to chat with you today is I have been playing a lane battler. And to my great surprise, this is a lane battler that millions of other people are also playing. 
um, which is a little bit different for me because usually it's sort of a niche genre. Um, I'm speaking, of course, about Marvel Snap. So what's your level, John? Oh, dear. Okay. Well, so I started playing Marvel Snap. Like a lot of people, I got very addicted to it. And I got uh, addicted to it enough that I was like, I need to uninstall this right now because <laughs> I am not getting work done. So I did that uh, in in a in a moment uh, when I felt like I needed to. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to pick that game up again because it's, of course, of professional interest to me as an aspiring uh, expert on lane battlers. And I discovered <laughs> that it had not linked to my Google account and that all of my progress had been lost. Oh, no. Particularly in that game is extremely demoralizing. And that game has gotten a lot of praise for its great onboarding. And I, I think that's deservedly so. But there's a there's a darker side to that, which is that when you do restart that game, you cannot skip through the tutorials. You cannot access any options. You cannot do anything but ride the rails uh, on the exact same path that you were on before. So I haven't quite. um, So my interaction with the game lately has been reading strategy about it and and looking at the card set because I'm very interested in it as a game. Um, But I have not quite (laughs) summoned the energy yet to uh, to redo all of my progress. Oh, no, John, I'm so sorry. My condolences. That's frustrating. Long answer to say that I don't know, I don't, I don't know precisely what my level was. Had you seen one of the upper pools yet? I think I had gotten to the very start of, of pool two, I believe. It's weird to discuss a game in those terms for me, but it, it it's doing a lot of things that I've liked that I haven't liked about previous online card games. Like I actually I bounced super hard off of Hearthstone. Were you a Hearthstone player? Uh, yeah, I played Hearthstone for a little while, but I was not. I didn't get deep into it. Yeah, I guess I bounced off of it too eventually. Well, why don't you describe for our listeners? Because you, being the authority, why don't you describe for our listeners what Marvel Snap is? So, so Marvel Snap is uh, a two out of three lane battler, uh, which is now, I guess, a, a subgenre of this already small genre. Right, right. <laughs> So you have uh, you have three locations that you're trying to fight over, um, a bit like a game called uh, Smash Up, which I don't think we've discussed. Uh, the uh, the various locations have have effects associated with them, um, but you don't know what they are at the start of the game. You only know what the effect of the very first location is, and the other twos will be revealed as the game goes on. Game only lasts six turns. You have a a 12 card deck that you construct in advance in the manner of a CCG. You draw new cards each turn. Um, There's a there's a a mana system that's very similar to Hearthstone where you get, you know, one new mana each turn so you can play bigger and more powerful cards as you go. And already that's about all the mechanics. It's very streamlined. There's a there's a limit on how many cards you can have on your side of each lane, which is something that that battle line also had Um, in in Marvel Snap. It's four in six turns. You can play quite a lot of cards because, uh, you know, by the end, you're getting six six mana a turn. So um, if you have cheaper cards, you may you may fill all 12 slots, right? That's four per lane that you have on your side. So by by the end of the game, even though it's only six turns, there yeah. can be quite a lot of complexity going on, especially when you factor in that the locations have 
have effects. But then, of course, uh, the name Marvel Snap itself is a reference to the fact that there's a sort of meta element to the game that somewhat resembles the withdrawal mechanism in Airland and Sea, where you're playing the game for points. Um, and if you're familiar with backgammon and the concept of a doubling cube, it's a bit like that. Um, you have the ability to double the number of points that you're playing for. It's called snapping. Raise it from one to two or two to four, or eventually four to eight. Um, so I, either player can do that if they think they have a good chance of winning. The other player can then retreat if they think they have a poor chance. Um, and then the game itself will automatically uh, double the stakes before the last card play. The big thing for me is um, that snap. I mean, it's the titular th- mechanism, right? And it's it's very tactile because you literally just tap the screen and it happens. Um, now, a few people have mentioned to me, and I felt this the first time I played it too, wow, this reminds me of Air, Land, and Sea a little bit. Um, although, of course, the big difference is that it's tied to a gradual progression system through the card pool and various unlocks, as opposed to the way that you've used it with a a metagame strung between maybe five matches. When you played it, did you feel uh, that similarity or has anyone pointed that out to you? How, how have you received it in that regard? So I would say like, even from the moment this thing got announced, uh, (laughs) you know, before it was even playable, I mean, I know it was in some kind of early access for a while, um, but, uh, they put up, a some kind of trailer, I think many months ago, even b- before it was released. Um, I started getting messages about it and people saying, Hey, this looks like airline and sea. So I was, I was made aware of it very quickly. Um, <laughs> I bet. And a lot of people have gotten, I guess, even sort of outraged on my behalf. Like how dare they steal your game? You know, which is, which is amusing to me. Cause you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm all for people using these using these mechanisms. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, and especially I think this idea that there's a, a meta layer on top of the game you're playing, right? So you're playing a game on two levels. You're playing the game of literally what card should I play right now? But also this sort of, you're trying to answer in your head, this larger question of, can I even win at all? To me, I mean, that's that was the whole inspiration for making Airland and Sea. And when I did that, I did that because I thought there certainly could be more than one uh, game in this space. Um, and so I, you know, it's pretty cool to see it in in such a big mainstream way. I've been curious if maybe they would allow like a best of three or best of five or first to ten uh, using the snap for something like a professional league. Um, there, there was a joke, somebody was joking on social media that, um, certain of the locations are just so rule bending, um, that it would be a real, it would, it would be a real downer to, let's say you're playing in a professional tournament or, or something. I don't even know if that will exist, but let's say you're playing in a professional tournament and suddenly the location is ego. Um, which I don't know if you've seen all of the locations, but ego means that the AI now plays for both sides. Yeah. And so it, it 100% comes down to the preparation of your deck um, and the, and your opponent's deck and, and a little bit what the AI chooses to do. And it was just this, this very humorous idea of how, how, how fun would that be if it was a million dollar tournament and ego is the first location. 
and I feel like that is when it would really start to resemble air, land and sea as if it had like a, you know, first, you, you know, two players play first one to 12. Apparently they are planning on adding a mode like that because I think that when I, when I was playing the game as you know, I, I got pretty addicted to it, but I I wasn't feeling as much tension around the snap mechanism as I wanted to. Sure. Because you are playing for these points that they sort of affect your ranking. And if you're really invested in the ranking, then then um, I think that works great. Um, but it's not like you said, like you're playing a, a, a match against one other person and you really want to win. And those points are really intrinsic to the match, right? Where you're yeah. racing to, to 12, like it works in Airland and Sea. Um and so, and I think also what's cool about that and would be cool in, in Marvel Snap in particular, because it's a constructed deck game, is that, you know, in that first game, you see what they have, right? Sure. Or at least you see some of what they have. So if you're playing an average of, say, five games in a series, then that enters into it as you get into the later matches, the mind games get, I think, even more interesting because now it does become a much more bound card game experience. They could signal that they have a certain card that could cause you to fold, and then it turned out they didn't have it at all. Um, so I'm really excited for them to add something like that. Do you know when it works for me? Because I, I almost never snap, and I don't care if I win with one or eight. The exception, John, is if somebody um, snaps at me, especially if they do it prematurely, and then I win, I feel really good taking those eight points. That is true, right? There's like a real feel good moment there when you see your your opponent getting overconfident. Yeah. Um so I think, you know, it it does work on that level. Um and I think I mean yeah, the the analogy here I think too is to uh is to poker, right? Where there is so much randomness like you mentioned that ego location and there's there's certainly others that are completely wild and can upend any given match and you know if you did want to create a serious tournament scene for this right you would need to account for that and, and the only way to account for that is to play multiple games yeah um so i i think at some point they're gonna they're gonna have to to go in this in this direction or at least make it an option now it uses cards in a pretty different way uh from what you do even even uh the way that cards are played so rather than playing them turn by turn uh, it uses a simultaneous play system, or at least it sort of does. Yeah, I think that is a that is a huge difference with Airland and Sea because that creates such a different feel. I imagine that they were going to push in that direction, probably no matter what, because it's just so good for a game that's digital, that's matching you up with opponents to just keep things short, right? Yeah. And it's also like if I were to try to do that in a physical card game, there's so many problems I would run into that they don't have to deal with, right? Like, yeah. so I, you know, if Airland C had simultaneous turns, you would have to have, you know, another set of three cards that are like A, B, C that correspond to the lanes that you reveal simultaneously. It would get immediately more, more fiddly. Yeah. And it's interesting too that because it's digital, you observe the lanes mirrored. Um, you're not actually observing them from opposite sides of the table. That is true. Yeah, I hadn't really, I hadn't really like fully th thought about that, but that is absolutely true. Um, and it's, of course, it's leaning into the the digital like capabilities in in so many ways, right? Like, there's so many. I mean, so much of the 
the card effects that they have are are making full use of that, right? Like, you know, replacing one card randomly with another card from the entire, you know, pool of cards that are available. You know, the kind of thing that you could never do in a in a in a physical card game. Um, but just like honing in on the the simultaneous play, it it definitely enhances the the mind games, I think, aspect to it. And it makes it feel extra heightened. In some way, like a, like a pure lane battler like this is a bit like uh, like three different auctions, right? Where you're trying to get, I mean, ideally what you want is you, you want your opponent to overpay <laughs> for a location, right? Right. <laughs> um, so you sort of want to want to want to bait them into doing that, um, and and that can happen, I think, in a in a turn based game because some cards, uh, you know, have way more strength than others, right? So it's very non-linear as you're playing your cards. And a game like Airland at Sea has has limitations on where you can play based upon, like, color matching. Another digital advantage is that it does the counting for you. Right, exactly. Yeah, because, like, there's there's a lot of math potentially in these games, right? When you get, like, I remember I, I had to make some adjustments to Airland at Sea. I started getting uh, concerned, you know, and then I think this, to some extent, this happens more in the expansion, where things start getting up well above twenty, right? You start doing a lot of addition just to just to make the game work, um, and it is very nice that that all gets handled for you. And it also yeah. means that they can, you know, there's like a location that adds you know a hundred uh, to everything, so that's that's something that they can easily do. One thing I think is fascinating looking at taking advantage of the simultaneous turns is it allows for trap cards. Um, where it's if your opponent plays here right away, um, you get an extra strength bonus. It allows for little uh, increases of ante. I mean, even just some of the starting cards, like there's one that's a, yeah. I think it's Hawkeye, where he he's pretty weak. I, th- I think he's just strength one. But if you play to that same location on the next turn, he get he becomes pretty powerful. He gets plus two, which for a cost one card is pretty good. Um, but the danger is now you've signaled to your opponent where to play a trap card if they're if they're playing that kind of deck. Little things like that. And I think you mentioned this on social media, actually, is is showing players why it's important to invest in lanes, even when you don't want to win there. And I'm thinking of an early card. I think it's Lizard. I don't know if that's his name. I don't know my superheroes very well, but he's a he's a he costs two, but he's strength five. But if your opponent has four cards um, opposing him, then his strength drops by three. And so one card is now, unless you want to yield that lane, forcing a, a sort of outside and outsized investment from his opposition. And it, it does all sorts of smart things like that that I think really show a understanding of, uh, of the genre. I, I'm kind of curious to ask them which lane battlers they've played. Yeah, I wonder what they are drawing on. It does seem like they've thoroughly explored like the design space that they have. Um and like you said those trap cards like yeah, there's so many things that refer to cards that are played that turn, right? Um which again only works in the simultaneous yeah. play f- format. But I don't know yeah, I mean, other than Battle Line, I, I, I suspect they might have looked at Smash Up, even though that's, I mean, we didn't really discuss that. It's like kind of adjacent to the genre. <laughs> it's not maybe purely a lane battler. Yeah. I know that they 
I, I was told directly that they did not um, look at my game. So, I mean, I, I'm willing to take their word for it. Um, oh, right. Okay. You would, I mean, I would have assumed that, frankly. But um, I also, as as we discussed earlier, I'm well aware of how long it takes to develop a video game. <laughs> so, since given that I've been in development on one myself for, <laughs> for five plus years. So, I'm, I'm willing to take them at their word that they had, they had locked the design, I guess, many, many years ago prior to probably my game was designed, but not not out and on their radar at that time. Yeah, I'm not sure what they what they were drawing on. I mean, we talked about some of these other games that are, you know, add a lot more moving parts like like Reign of War and stuff. And I don't think those don't have this the 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 real purity of this sort of like system of, you know, like I said just trying to like trick people into overpaying here or there. Right. And, and this sort of really fundamental decisions of like, do I go wide or do I go narrow? You know, a lot of that, I think, gets buried by all the complexity in some of the other lane battlers. And it's really laid bare in, in, in Marvel Snap in a really nice way. You know, one thing I, I've noticed is that playing against people is that I think that playing little independent board games um, has actually pretty much prepared me to be very good at Marvel Snap. Like a lot of people are making very bad game theory decisions. Uh, I don't know if did had you reached a rank where you were playing more against uh, good people than against the AI. I was felt like I was just wading into those waters around the time that I that I that I dropped out of it. But I also I also felt that way. I mean, uh, yeah, I felt like a lot of the heuristics that I had built up applied pretty well here. Well, because I feel like the the most like basic strategy is what to just go hard for two, yeah, right, and and just just put all your energy there. But yeah, if you can if you can sneak into a location where you know they're not defending, or uh, like if on that last move you can you can be making a play for two at a time, right? Now, I mean, it's it's somewhat complicated by the the energy system in the game, right? It ramps up so much. Like you're pretty much preparing for the last two plays of the game, right? But you don't know how many, you don't know how many locations are going to be able to play to. Well, unless something is locked up, right? I think that is like that's one of the things that gives you some certainty, right? Like near the end, is that usually some of the locations are full. Well, and that's when it's time to bring out Spider Woman. There's certain cards that just are perfect for when your opponent thinks they have a strong lead and they're in a packed location. And and you can wipe them out with with two cards a lot of the time. Which one is uh, which one is Spider Woman? What does that one do? She's a cost five, strength seven, um, but she has a reveal effect that every single card on the other side gets minus one. Right. Okay. Yes, so, I've had that. So so yeah. basically, she's a cost five eleven against a full uh, region, which which is insane power. Um, Yes. And and you still have room like on the last play to play like a one card Electra to kill some annoying thing, right? Um, so so little tricks like that that to me are just very innate in board games where we're so we're 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 accustomed to you and I, uh, John and Dan sitting across from each other and playing these mind games and understanding a little bit of the game theory and mathematics behind it. And then I play online and it seems like you know, even now that I'm into the pool three and facing people mm -hmm. with very polished decks, like the, the game theory aspect, most people don't seem to lean into it very much. 
are you how are you handling your deck building are you looking stuff up or are you just winging it on your own i'm winging it so far and 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 the reason i'm doing that and this is one reason i really like this game compared to something like hearthstone i can make a 12 card deck you know yeah absolutely like, I, i'm that is a, that is a huge appeal yeah i i just don't have time to play you know growing up yeah sure i played some collectible card games i played magic but nowadays i just don't have time to sit and and consider cards anymore um and so a 12 card deck yeah i can do that especially with how easy it is to price them because you're kind of locked in right you're like well i want two or three ones i want two or three twos it, it's just so easy to make a deck and then you go win or lose and then you adjust it a little you're like ah, i'm not playing colossus very often so i'm just going to switch them out um so i mean that becomes very easy i mean that is something too that i mean the card pool is not that large either really no, i mean it isn't. and it's uh, like i i sat down because you know once i realized i was frustrated and didn't want to like play through the beginning again which i will probably sit through eventually <laughs> because <laughs> i don't i don't want to be locked out of this forever but uh i just sat down and read all the cards right and that's that was just like something i could do in one sitting i mean that's not something that would that would be super easy to do for a lot of ccgs um but it's also like heavily artificially constrained right like i don't know how how many cards do you personally have access to where you're at um i don't know i'm i'm like collection level 400s i think I don't know how many. Okay, you must be close to maxing out then, I think, at that point, from based on what I read. Okay. But I think, uh, yeah, it's it's one of those decisions that I think is, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, I know, I mean, did you find it frustrating, like, w waiting to get new cards when you were playing? A little bit. You know, the weird hurdle that I found is um, when you kind of, when you first, like, edge into a new pool... And suddenly you're facing decks that are using all of these wild cards that you haven't unlocked yet. Um, yeah. That's the hurdle that I was facing. And that's that's the first time I started to feel the pressure. Like, oh, man, I've got to actually start spending these dumb boosters. Cause I, John, I could not be less interested in upgrading my cards. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. And watching the little animation that it wants to show me, I... I, I wish I could just cut all of that out. I I don't care about it. I stopped clicking on the upgrade after a while, which because I didn't realize how that was tied into the the larger system of getting new cards because I was so annoyed by the animation. <laughs> yeah, I I just don't like it. Yeah, I know. It's just it's one of those things that that makes you feel like you're being manipulated, right? Yeah, <laughs> or at least that that's that's how I reacted to it. You know, it's like frame break, and it's like everything's all so so juicy and and exciting but in this way that you're like yeah just they're just trying to keep me on this on this treadmill yes, here. so it's like it's definitely that's the skinner box exactly you feel like you're in the box i want to get out of the box i don't care about the box i just want to play the game you know i was frustrated by by getting cards slowly um but i think i do think like to your point about the deck building and just being an adult and not having a lot of time to do that i do think it is also it turns out to be a nice decision, uh, you know, in some ways that you, you only have so much to work with as well, right? Um, it's not only it's, it's a 12 card deck, it's like, okay, I got a new card. Does it, is it better than any of the ones that I have, right? It's like a relatively easy decision, um, the, the way that that ramps up. And I think, I can't think of a game that's made deck building quite that accessible. 
Right. And that, I, I think that's, I mean, that's a famously hard genre to, to play around in. So I, it is, and that has nothing to do with it being a lane battler really, or with the Marvel theme. I think it's just that, that that's just a really uh, a cool accomplishment. I do think maybe it's tied to the lane battler in the sense that I do something I said earlier about how, when you're, when you're playing this area majority game, where you're trying to control lanes, it does tend to, I mean, yes, you can destroy cards and do all these wacky effects, but it does mean that the game state tends to escalate in complexity because things tend to stay in place, right? You don't have, you know, in magic, you know, for example, you have these board wipes where, you know, all of a sudden every creature in play is destroyed, right? Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's, I think, you know, you you conserve a lot of game state, and I do think that is probably key to why they're able to to make a CCG that runs off of so few cards to begin with. Is is that they have a lane battler engine under the hood? I think they do so many things well. I'm I'm curious where they're going to go from here. I I even think that the fact that they pitch you against the AI intermittently is a good thing. Um, because it pushes up your win ratio, so you feel cool. But I'm, I'm curious where they're going to go. The starting pool seems very strong. I like the deck building. I agree with everything you're saying. I'm really curious how they're going to handle power creep. How are they going to keep me on the treadmill? And and that makes me that gives me some pause. I, I mean, I don't envy that design challenge, right? I mean, because they have they have not done anything that would prepare people for say a rotating card pool, right? Oh yeah, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, I think you you grind hard to get those cards and then you feel like, I think if they were to take away cards from people, that's not going to go over well. So that, I mean, that's one of the solutions historically for this kind of game. And that just seems off the yeah. table, doesn't it? I mean, I, I mean, unless, you know, I guess, I mean, I do think the way forward for them is probably other modes, right? Like we talked about a sort of like a tournament mode where you play multiple rounds against the same person. Sure. Yeah. And so I think maybe, maybe in the context of a new competitive mode, they could start rotating the card pools and, and maybe God forbid banning cards, right. Or doing things like that. Um, as long as that was, you know, removed from the sort of main path that you're on in the game. But at the same time, it also seems so fundamental that the game is like this on rails through this, like, I mean, that's also kind of what works about it, right? Is it doesn't present you with 10 options and and 10 modes to pick from right from the start. So, I mean, I don't have any brilliant ideas here. It does, it does seem like a, like a difficult challenge ahead of them. Uh, I mean, what would you, how would you approach that? Uh, I I would approach it by being grateful that I'm not in charge. Um, I find find it just intimidating. Um, I do hope that they add modes like so that I can play with friends. Yes. Um, I I do hope that they add a, you know, first to 24 in the cube, uh, you know, snaps. I hope they add stuff like that. I, I want to be able to play with friends. I want to feel more tension from this snap. I I want it to be a weapon um, because in, in your game, um, h- how far the turn moves uh, back and forth between players is a weapon and making a strong showing early on to intimidate somebody into backing down when the rest of your cards maybe don't synergize well with the locations is a major way to play. 
I think it's incredibly rewarding when you're playing air, land, and sea, and you're holding certain cards that are just not working for you, but you make a strong enough showing that your opponent backs out. That feels great. And Marvel Snap has the tools to do that, but currently I just, you know, I don't care if I drop a rank at all. Um, if something is 50, 50, I'm not going to be intimidated out of that pool. I'm, 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 I'm going to fight. I'm going to stand my ground. Yeah. The, the desire to see what happens, I think outweighs it pretty strongly at this point. I wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. Like the only exception is I sure I'll retreat if somebody snapped early. So I'm going to lose, you know, four or eight. And it's obvious cause I'm, I'm holding, you know, carnage, but not, not Bucky Barnes, you know, like the, the card's the way I've built my deck just has not panned out. There's no chance of winning. Then sure, I'll retreat. That's really rare though. I am realizing one lever they have to address power creep since you did raise that, which is the locations, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. They they maybe can't take out cards or rotate them out, but they can heavily nerf them through the locations, right? And that is something that they do have at the their disposal that they have trained people to accept that the locations are going to be totally nuts, right? If the games are getting stale because people are building the same deck over and over again based around the same characters, they don't need to ban them. They just like put a location into the pool that that makes that character unworkable. So that that did occur to me as something that I could have definitely imagined them doing. That's a great point because I think they're already doing it. Because recently I have been seeing a lot of like world ship, which is a location that destroys the other two locations. So now you're playing a lane battler over one lane and it makes the ridiculous. Uh, there's a deck that's just frustrating to play because it always triggers. It's like squirrel girl and that Tarzan guy and a lot mm -hmm. of low cost cards. And well, good luck pulling that off in one location. Right. Yeah. If, you, if you've got the, the, the weenie deck with all the small characters, it's not going to work. Yeah. Or is that, is that the one they call the zoo deck? Yeah, something like that. I don't know. I don't know the names. I haven't looked up any builds, but I mean, it feels like a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So if they came to you, John, and they said, hey, John Perry, we want you to make the analog version of Marvel Snap. Okay. Would you just port it over as is and have tokens or or would you do something maybe to make the Snap matter more? What what would be your instinct as a designer? Oh, wow. Um Right away, I mean, you'd have to change it, I think, quite dramatically. I mean, I do think I, I've seen that online. I've seen people saying, oh, they should make a, an actual card game of that. And I think, you know, you can't really underestimate how much work that would be. I think if you don't know how to design a game, if you don't know the ins and outs of it, I can see how you would make the assumption this is easy, but it's it wouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, if I were to just go through the cards and I think like write down or just like, you know, put an X next to all of the ones that are leveraging the digital format in some way, I have a feeling like 60% might be gone right off the top, you know? Um, sure. And also not to mention the simultaneous play, right? Like how do you how do you indicate what, what uh, lane you want to go to, right? I mean, yes, you could have a, a deck that's got left, center, right in it, and you put down two cards at a time and and reveal them. But the more you start doing stuff like that, the less it's going to feel like Marvel Snap, right? I mean, I think what again, what yeah. people are like about it is is you know how how fast it moves, how how breezy it is. Um, so if you if if you ported it directly, you're going to lose a lot of that. In fact, I think you'd have to invent a new 
I think you'd have to invent a new mechanism or two. So that's probably what I would do. I mean, I would say, okay, two out of three works. We know that works. Location effects, that's just flipping a, a, a card over. So you can do that. Although, you know, you're not going to have effects that create random cards out of thin air. You could still do some of the weirder stuff, like, you know, some percentage chance of a card being destroyed. I mean, I guess that would require rolling a die. But maybe you could have some, you could have a few randomizers in the box, right? Like a like a standard D6 or something that you, that you reuse in a lot of different ways to recreate some of that. Um, and the limit of four cards per lane and the 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 power system i guess you'd need a way to i mean it's not hard to remember one two three four five six for the power but things like that you know you usually want to track in in some fashion right yeah so i guess you'd have to give people what a a player board or something to track what power level you're at i mean it quickly explodes the number of components which again you know i'm adverse to i think um i mean a lot of people in the in the board game industry are more tolerant than i am but uh Again, I think with the brand of what this game is, um, you wouldn't want to go too far down that road because it's again you're you're getting away from what makes it good. So I have a feeling you'd need to invent at least one new element. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what that would be, right? Like, would it? Would you start using the backs of the cards more? It doesn't make sense in this game really to have suits. Yeah, I think that's where that's I imagine 90% of the effort would be just trying to patch the the gaping hole in the design space that suddenly appears when you when you don't have access to a computer crunching numbers for you. Every so often we do get these ad- adaptations like uh there's Slay the Spire is coming up and I'm really curious to see what they do. Um because at a certain degree of complexity, why don't I just play the digital version that's handling all the math for me and, and all the upkeep? Um, because you make a, you make a very good point. Do I really want to be worrying about like a resource tracker? <laughs> right, exactly. And just things like tracking damage. I mean, I, I, I thought Rift Force was like a really cool game when I played it. Right. But you're, you're putting lots of little damage tokens on the cards. And I think, you know, that works great, but I mean, Imagine that times ten, right? Yeah. Um, it it quickly gets it gets awkward. So um, I'm also interested to see how that Slay the Spire turns out. I mean, to me, the argument for playing that as a board game is even a little weaker because it's a it's a one player experience um, inherently. I mean, I guess playing it co op is is part of the appeal. So I mean, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't write it off. It might be a great game, um, but it you know, I uh, a lot of respect for the people that 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 did that port because it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a simple thing. And I think you're right that a lot of people who aren't as invested in game design might, might imagine that it's easier to do this than it actually is. Yeah. Another example actually would be there's, there's a, there's a, a Wordle game. I mean, this is a little bit out of left field, oh, right? Yeah. But like, right, but there right, you right. have a, a, a very popular digital game that they did it just a completely straight sort of artless port into a board game where they did, I think, just literally keep it exactly the same, but now it's suddenly more fiddly. <laughs> and I think um, that might be a good example of, you know, how it, it it takes a little bit more than that to move between the two mediums. Well, and it, it, it stands in contrast to what makes the original game appealing. So much the way that, you know, you, you make this great point that Marvel Snap, the appeal is the computer is handling all sorts of stuff for you, and it plays in three minutes. Right, and I can forgive a lot 
in three minutes, right? Like I can, I can forgive a bad draw. I can forgive a bad matchup. I can, I can forgive a a ridiculous location like ego. Um, Those things don't matter in a three player game. If I'm playing this head to head with somebody and suddenly it's taking 15 minutes or 20 minutes, I'm going to, I'm getting frustrated. And, and the same thing happens with Wordle, where Wordle is designed to be a game that you can take totally at your own pace. Uh, it can be your bathroom game, or it can be a game that you make a guess and then let it sit in your subconscious for five hours. And so suddenly, if you're playing it with a person, you're putting a hard cap on the way that it's meant to be experienced, and it just totally defies everything that makes that game appealing. And I would have some serious reservations about doing that with Marvel Snap as well. Now, I mean, what do we think the chances are that that's going to happen anyways? Because, I mean, the game seems to be uh, doing pretty well, and there do seem to be a lot of people asking for this. Although, I mean, I guess they never did it with Hearthstone, right? Like, so, and, and it does seem like, you know, there's so much more money in video games, to be quite frank, that there's... Uh, there's not a ton of incentive to go the other way. Um, I think, uh, I mean, obviously it ha- it came together with Slay the Spire, but it's not the original creators that did it, right? I think um, there, there, uh, someone else. I think was was very was excited enough about the idea and and negotiated the rights to it. Um, but it does it does seem like something that. I don't know. It's kind of a toss up whether it would actually happen, but it's certainly possible. It does seem a little bit like asking for like half of a peanut to go with your surf and turf dinner. <laughs> sure. Why bother? Right. Uh, yeah. I, I was reminded of something that based on what you said there though, about how you're willing to tolerate a lot of randomness and craziness because it's so easy. Right. Yeah. And I think that also connects to the folding mechanism, which I know you said you're not engaging with so much, right? You, I, I don't know if you said you never retreat. I think maybe you said you did when things are very, very off the rails. Maybe. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and I know that like, that's something I worried about with Airland and Sea in particular. I was like, well, you know, I'm trying to to draw on something that I love from poker. Um, and obviously poker works as a game. People love poker, but there there is a oh, yeah. common complaint is, well, you know, the correct way to play this game is to fold 80% of my hands or some number, right? Like, so how is that fun? Right. Sure. And I did worry if, I did worry about that with Airland and Sea. Um, I do think it being a two player experience really helps solve 90% of that issue. Right. But I sure. think I did worry about, you know, there's some friction with the fact that I've got to collect these. It's only 18 cards, but I got to collect them. I got to shuffle them. I got to redeal them. Is this going to feel anticlimactic? Is, is this, I think this mechanism is going to be great, but is, is it actually going to connect with people? I was pretty surprised when the game came out and I hardly ever got that complaint from people. And so I'm also surprised, like, I think maybe I only heard it once. Um, Whereas I expected a lot of people to be like, hey, why would I play a game about folding when I want to play? But then I, when I look online at the comments and stuff around Marvel Snap, I see that complaint a lot more, you know, complaining about the fact that, yeah, I don't want to retreat, but not for the, not on the grounds that you're saying, you're saying like, you don't want to retreat because the tension is not there for you. You don't care about your rank, Right. But yeah. this is more like people don't want to retreat because they just want to play. They just want to see what happens. 
And that's surprising to me because I think, you know, there's even less friction in the digital version, right? You don't have to shuffle or anything. It is fun to think about, though, you know, one of the things that makes it hard to retreat in these kinds of games is is the sort of the not knowing of like what could have happened, right? Right. Which is, you know, there's that moment in, in poker where, you know, you fold and then and then maybe if the other person is nice, they show you what they had, right? Yeah. Um, if they're if they're not keeping things uh, close to the vest. But um, I, I wonder if Marvel Snap could even have a feature where they sort of showed you how it would have gone. But there's probably too much decision making that has to happen in that last turn that they I don't know how they would they would model that. Um, well, that's just one straight advantage of playing with friends, right? Is if I, if I played with a friend and I was curious what would happen face to face with a pal, absolutely. We're going to be gracious enough and be like, yeah, I was holding this great card. I was going to destroy you or ha ha. I got you. I had nothing but garbage. I mean, that's, that's half the fun of playing face to face. That's true. And like with um with Airland and C when I when I play, like I honestly do that a fair amount where I say like, okay, I'm folding officially here. We're gonna score it based on me folding here, but let's just play it out. And oftentimes people are down to do that. Sure. Yeah, I think playing directly with friends on Marvel Snap, I think, you know, you could you could recapture some of that, which would be nice. I've been working on an article actually that talks a little bit about that with all these uh, you know, there there are plenty of platforms now that do uh, digital digital implementations of of analog games, um, including I've been playing a lot of um, Gloomhaven digitally, and mm-hmm. I, I I enjoy playing di- digital Gloomhaven because it handles a lot of the crap for me. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've played Gloomhaven, but there is a lot of upkeep, and it's really nice having a computer take care of it. But one of the places where it really actually is inferior um, is that I just I lose that personal control where, you know what, if I if I draw something that ruins a game an hour in, um, yeah, I'm going to cheat because I'm playing with friends. We don't want to repeat the scenario. Mm. We're going to cheat or, you know, we're curious about something that maybe happened. So we're going to look at a card. Um, or, or just like we were saying with Airland and seat, let's play it out and see what happened, but we're going to declare that you won because you outbluffed me and digital games lose that touch entirely, which is one of the reasons why I, I'm actually a little suspicious of this trend to making digital versions of analog games because it so often sheds that. Yeah, that's a good, that's a very good point. Um, I think you know, that might be one of the few things that, that recommends Tabletop Simulator, which otherwise I do have a lot of issues with. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how you feel about Tabletop Simulator, but I mean, the, the normal complaint, which I have and may perhaps you share, is just, you know, why do I have a fully-fledged physics engine here? I try, try to stack my cards and I flick half of the game off the table somehow. Right, exactly. Yeah, there's just so so prone to error um, because of that. And it's also slower. And, you know, if you want to play with someone who's not a gamer, like teaching them about, you know, WASD and how to move around is not super fun to do. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, um, it's a... It, it, but it has that expressiveness, right? Like I've had times on Tabletop Simulator where... You know, people are the way people are moving their cards. It, it feels like they're fiddling at the table, you know. And there's there's personality to how how they're just how their cursor is moving. And of course, you're enforcing the rules, so you can 
you can employ some of that fuzziness that you were talking about where, you know, you know, fudge the rules here or there um, yeah. to make the experience look tailored. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, what's, what's the, what's the middle ground? Maybe it's, it's, is a tabletopia or something. I've used that a little bit, but um, I'm suspicious of porting these games to digital, but a lot of, mostly I just feel like maybe that we just don't quite have the right, the, the right tech yet. Right. Like we just don't have like, we certainly don't have my killer app that sort of captures everything that I would like in a digital version of a board game. So now that you've played Marvel Snap and we've established that they mercilessly and ruthlessly stole from Airland and Sea, is there anything that you uh, might be keen to steal back or in any ways that it's maybe inspired your thinking? It's funny because I had actually gone through the thought process of what if Airland and Sea but a CCG prior to Marvel Snap coming out. Oh, really? Cool. But I was very inside the uh, the air, land, and sea paradigm when I was when I was thinking about that. So I imagined, well, you would have um, you would still have color matching, right? You would still have cards that are tied to specific theaters. I imagined that like each player would bring three locations with them, and sort of you would randomly line them up against each other, and so on. And so I I, I definitely had very different ideas about how to how to how to do this. So it, it's definitely eye-opening seeing how they did it. Um, as far as like, I wish there were more lessons I could import back in, but I, there's not as many as you would think. And it's a lot of it's what we were talking about is that so much of what it's doing is like, Oh, of course they can do that. And of course that's really cool, but that's because it's a digital game, right? Yeah. Like it's not something I can, I can easily leverage in the in the analog space. It is fun to see the doubling cube getting used. Um, that's another thing that I was playing with. I mean, there is a, I mean, we didn't mention this, but there is a promo card that I designed for Airland and Sea that is literally the snap mechanism. Oh, cool. Um, I didn't know that. That I, again, designed, you know, unbeknownst, uh, or, uh, unaware that Marvel Snap was just around the corner. I mean, it's a promo card, but like, it's really just a set of rules, right? I mean, you can... You can play the game without it without the card, mm-hmm. um, but if you look on if you look on BGG, you can find the details. Um, but I adhered pretty closely to how it works in backgammon, and like really closely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so perhaps that's the thing that I'm taking away the most from Marvel Snap is the way that they tweaked that mechanism because it's hard to get that working right like it is yeah the way it works in backgammon is like the point spread is enormous right it's you know you can just keep doubling it i mean it's like every side of a a six-sided die so it it caps out at you know 64 or something um so it makes game lengths completely wild right i mean (laughs) whereas like with airland and sea like you know the 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 range of points you can win is two to six, right? So it means that like, even if someone is just very aggressively folding, like there's only so many matches you can have um, before eventually it ends. So the way that they did it where, you know, you only get the one snap and then also the auto double that's like completely out of people's hands because I, I mean, that is something I, I sort of uh, backed into in with uh, Airland and C was that like, that is the key moment, right? Like before yeah. the last card, 
Because just the nature of these lane battlers, like the last card is, or cards in the case of Marvel Snap, is so critical that that is like definitely for maximum tension. That's the place you want to raise the stakes. So I thought that was just just auto doubling it there, um, and having that be the one place. Like I mean, again with Airland, see, I have it ramping up with each card, which I think you know it works in that game. But it's they, I mean, they managed to get a lot of the same dynamics with with a very few steps, right? Yeah. Um, at most you're going to have three doubles. So I don't know. I'm thinking a lot about, about how I can draw upon that. Um, and I think I'm very, very interested to see how they design that sort of one V one, you know, race to, to a certain number of points matchup, because I think there's some interesting challenges there too, right? Like there's this thing that happens in airland and seed and it happens in poker tournaments where at a certain point you can't fold, right? Um, because you know, you're all in, right? right? Right. So I think, you know, how, how, how are they going to navigate like hitting that, that threshold? What, what point value are they, are they going to go with? Right. I mean, just the numbers on that are going to be interesting to see. So, but yeah, I mean, as for the actual like car design and stuff, I think it, too much of it is, is digital for me to, to draw too many lessons from, but I'm, I'm definitely impressed by what they were able to do. Well, John, thank you so much for chatting with me today. What I wanted to leave with is, you know, you are a talented game designer and you have a new game out. So I wanted to ask you about that. And I also wanted to ask, um, what's next? Are you working on anything uh, interesting? Sure. So the, the new game is called Spots and it's a departure for me in a few different ways. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a dice game. So, I mean, most of my designs up until now have been having card games and this is right. full on a dice game. It's got a it's got a dog theme, so you know dogs have spots, or at least the game the dogs in the game do, and dice have spots. So you're actually building dogs on cards with the dice that you collect. Oh, that's cute! I love it. Yeah, I think certainly certainly in a, in, in appearance and in genre, it's it's more of a casual family game than I think my other games maybe maybe like feel like. Um, at the same time, you know I. I need to not get bored when I'm making these games and and playtesting them, you know, over and over and over again. <laughs> so I, I cram this thing with as as much uh, interest and variety as I as I possibly could. So that that's a game I'm really proud of. That's a game I also made with um, the guys at CMYK, which um, is not a publisher. I'm not sure if is super on people's radar, but they probably are aware of some of the games they've made, which are mostly party games, things like uh, Monikers and Wavelength. Oh sure, yeah. They're branching out now. They um they're behind that uh, that new like climate change game that that Matt Leacock is involved with, uh, Daybreak. I don't know if you saw the the Kickstarter mm-hmm. for that. Um, but they just have a really cohesive art aesthetic to what they do. And what was also interesting about this game Spots that was different than my prior games. Um, I was talking about the process of sort of just handling handing a prototype off to a publisher and then. It's sort of flying out of my control, and they they sort of do the art and skin it from there. Um, this game was very much as ground up created with the publisher, with CMYK, from the very beginning. So we were like working on art and and product design and the rule book and everything like all the way through the process. So because of that, I'm I I, I think it's a more cohesive product, and I'm pretty proud of it. As for other things, um, well, UFO fifty. <laughs> 
<laughs> which uh you know i mentioned i gave the i gave the pitch for that earlier and it is still coming i mean i know like you know when a game takes this long to make you know i see the i see posts online from people now and then wondering is that game still happening right is it vaporware it's not it's i'm working on it every day and if if listeners are interested it's uh it's 50games.fun is the website for it and something i would say about that is it it is a video game 50 video games in fact but assuming that most of the people listening to this are board gamers primarily, that's kind of, that's my love. That's what I know is board games. So I have borrowed from board game mechanics heavily in designing my share of the games in UFO 50. So I, I think there's going to be a lot in there for board gamers oh, to enjoy. Great. Because it's also kind of fun to think about, you know, one of the things that excites me about board games is you'll play a game and... um. Sometimes I'll think to myself, you know, this is a really clever, amazing game. And there's no reason this game couldn't have existed in, you know, ancient times, right? Because it's just, it's it's just wood right, right. and paper or whatever. So um, it, it was sort of fun to think about, you know, even just going back to the 80s, which is when we've set these games for UFO 50. Um, what if they knew, what if they were ahead of their time, right? What if somehow they knew all of the all of the design knowledge that we have now in 2022 and what would it look like if they yeah. designed 8-bit games you know knowing about modern board game mechanics um because there's no reason there's no technological reason why you couldn't be drawing on that stuff so i'm very excited about about that one obviously how many of the games in the collection are yours about a third um it's uh i mean it's a, oh my goodness I, yeah it's a lot right it's it's really collaborative and obviously we're all Everybody's working on every game to some degree, but yeah, it's probably more than you might guess <laughs> because uh, the way the project was formed was there were just three of us at the beginning. It was just me and Derek and um, Eric, who's our also our audio guy and composer. Um, so we roughly split the collection into thirds um, and then brought on people, more people later to help us out. So yeah, I mean... In some ways, the bulk of the design that I've done for the last five years, nobody's seen. So it's going to be very, uh, very interesting <laughs> when it comes out. And 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 it's funny because, like, you know, part of the reason that I'm willing to, you know, when when Ben Brode from the team of Marvel Snap says, you know, oh, I didn't look at Airland and see, like, we locked our design internally. Uh, to me, that makes perfect sense that they would just sort of, they would arrive at the same place. What do you call it? Like con- convergent sort of design. Yeah, sure. There's literally a game in the in UFO 50 that I think when it comes out, people will realize that it bears more than a passing resemblance to Quacks of Quedlinburg. But I don't know if people are going to believe me when, oh. I, when I say that I definitely designed it uh, before I ever saw Quacks of Quedlinburg. But it's just this this dang thing has taken so long to make. So it's it's going to be a, it's going to be a big dump of a lot of uh, a lot of my ideas all at once when it does finally come out. It's funny how that happens. That parallel invention. Parallel invention. That is the term right. that I was grasping for. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you again, John, for chatting with us. And uh, best of luck in all of your endeavors. And I am looking forward to both spots and UFO 50 whenever it's ready. Thank you. Thank you for being charitable about the, uh, <laughs> about the release date on that one. And it's been, it's been wonderful talking to you. I'm, I'm a huge fan of your work. 